give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And when I am alone, oh, when I am alone, oh, and when I am alone, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. to die just give me Jesus give me Jesus give me Jesus you can have all this world just give me Jesus You are with us online. Thank you for joining us virtually. And for those of you who are here, uh, thank you for being here. And I want to say a special thank you for singing out. That was awesome to hear everybody singing. It was very encouraging. And I was blessed by our time singing together this morning. So thank you. Uh, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark's account of the life of Jesus. And it's so important that we 
get this, that we actually have four accounts of the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, there's only one account of the story of the first church in Acts. But there's four accounts of the life of Jesus. And they're right there at the beginning of the New Testament. And I think they're there on purpose. It's as if to say, you know, you read Matthew? You got the story of Jesus down? You think you got it down? Okay, good. Now, 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 now go check out Mark's account. And we want you to get it. Right? And then you say, okay, I've done Matthew, I've done Mark. Now it's time to move on, right? No, 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 no. We've got a third one for you here. We want you to read Luke. Read Luke's account of the life of Jesus. But it's so similar. Yes, that's the point. You need to get this. Okay, now I've done three. I'm good now, right? No, you need John. Right? It's like, you've got to get this. You got, we are supposed to come to know Jesus through these accounts. And in particular, they all four focus and give a lot of attention to the end of his life. what we call the Passion Week, the last week, and and the events and what happens there. It's so important that they all give us these accounts of what's happening because we're supposed to get this. Who He is, how He responds, how He reacts, what He's here to do. And uh, today we're looking at the the two key events referred to as the arrest and the trial. And we're going to especially focus in on how Jesus responds and how Jesus reacts and how we come to know Him better as a result. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to ask you to please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read verses 43 through 65. And this is the very inspired Word of God. And immediately while He was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him in a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. 
Father, as we look at these significant events that happened in the final hours of Jesus' life before His death, I pray that You'll help us come to know Him as we look at how He reacts and responds. Help us know better who Jesus is and what He's come to do so that we might respond faithfully in how we live and how we react and how we represent Him well. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to point out from our text three ways that Jesus was treated and how He responded to that treatment. First of all, He was rejected and yet He entrusted. Now last week, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that the cup might pass, asking the disciples to stay awake, but they can't, they fall asleep. And in verse 42, it's as if Jesus says, all right, that's it, it's enough. The hour has come. It's my time. And now in verse 43, we're told the crowd comes, this mob with swords, knives, clubs, with Judas leading the way. And they've worked out a plan that Judas will kiss Jesus, and that'll be the sign letting them know who Jesus is. Now you say, what's up with the kiss? You know, why does he kiss him? What's that about? Well, you've got to remember, this is before electricity. It's dark. It's at night. They're under the trees. You can't see anything. can't see any people. They probably don't really know what Jesus looks like. Right? They don't have Google. Just pull out Google and see what Jesus looks like. So they work out this plan. Right? If they go up with a big crowd and say, where's Jesus? He's potentially going to run away. That's their fear. So instead, Judah says, look, I know him. He knows me. I'll walk up to him. I'll kiss him. That's the, the, the typical way of greeting in this ancient Near Eastern culture. I'll kiss him on the cheek, and then you'll know who he is, and you arrest him. Right? The, the, the phrases that we use in our culture today, kiss of death, betrayed with a kiss, of course, come from this event. Um, Jesus points out how strange it is. Like, why, why are you coming with all of these people and clubs and swords? Like, what's going on here? What, what, what are you expecting? Are you expecting a big battle? You know, what's happening here? Look at verse 48. Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. In other words, Jesus says, Look, if I'm such a threat to you, if I'm so threatening why didn't you arrest me all those times I was teaching? If I did something that was so wrong, why didn't you arrest me then? Like, Why are you coming in this way with this huge army with weapons? You know, What are you doing? And I, I think it's possible, this is a little conjecture, I think it's possible that Judas has warned them. Like, hey guys, you, you don't understand what this guy's capable of. You know, I've seen him escape crowds before. I've seen him walk on water. I've seen him cast out demons into pigs, and the pigs died. So if you're going to go get him, you better be on guard, and you better bring some muscle with you. right? And notice what he says, verse 44. Judas says, Seize him when I kiss him, and lead him away under guard. Keep your eye on this one. And let's just point out, Judas is right. right? If Jesus doesn't want to be captured, he won't be. Right? If he wants to slip away, he can slip away. If he wants to do something huge, powerful, miraculous, profound, he can do that. So Judas is right to be concerned, and the crowd is right to be concerned. But notice the irony. They are here for a physical fight. They are here to use physical weapons. Jesus is here for a fight. He's here for victory. 
But it's not the normal kind of fight. It's not a fight with, with swords and clubs. It's not against flesh and blood. Jesus is here for victory, but he accomplishes the victory by submitting. He accomplishes the victory by entrusting himself to the Father. Right? It's very unnatural. In fact, one of his disciples you know, pulls out the sword and goes to swing it at somebody. And I think misses and cuts off his ear. Look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John tells us this was Peter. And Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. We're not here for a fight against flesh and blood. We're not here to use conventional weapons. This is not a conventional war. Luke tells us that Jesus actually goes and heals the man's ear. Why? Because Jesus is not here for a physical fight. In fact, he says in verse 49, let the Scriptures be fulfilled. This is why I'm here. So let the Scriptures be fulfilled. That raises the question, what Scriptures? What Scriptures does he have in mind? I think for sure, Zechariah 13.7, because that's just been referenced back in verse 27. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then verse 50 says, they all fled away. So this is what's happening. Jesus says, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. I will strike the shepherd. Who's I? God. God the Father will strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. They all fled away. Verse 50. Another Old Testament passage, perhaps, that Jesus has in mind when He says, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. This must happen to me. Is Isaiah 53. And I'm going to point out several ways along the way that Isaiah 53 is pointing forward to these events. For now, listen to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was rejected and yet he continued to entrust himself to the Father. And Peter makes this connection between Jesus and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and Peter makes the point, we should follow the example of Jesus and be like him in this way. Listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 and 23 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. We're supposed to follow His example, follow in His steps. Listen to this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to the Father. That's why I use that word entrusted. He was rejected, and yet he entrusted himself to the Father. Now, how often are you and I like Peter, not necessarily in 1 Peter 2, but like Peter in the story who pulls out the sword and is ready to go fight? We want to fight the way the world fights. We want to fight with weapons. We want to fight. We want to retaliate, right? If you do something to me, if you harm me, if you wrong me, I want to see you wronged in return. Right? We, 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 our natural instinct, our natural instinct, our nature is to fight back and to fight the way the flesh wants to fight, to fight the way the world wants to fight. Right? We, we want to use the same weapons the way the world fights. But yet we're, we're called, we say, we follow a Savior who said, Peter, put away the sword. I'm not here for a conventional fight. I'm not here with conventional weapons. I'm not here to fight flesh and blood. Now, I was trying to think of an example of a sword that you and I might be guilty of, of pulling out like Peter pulled out. I don't think we're tempted to pull out a physical sword. Though I will say at our house, we have had to put away some Nerf swords <laughs> at times. 
And we've actually put them away and forgotten, and then I'll find them like a year later. What is this? Oh, yeah, this one hurts. <laughs> We're going to keep this one put away for a little while longer, right? So there may be some practical application here for some of you with kids. Put away the sword, right? But what is a more likely application for us? In other words, what are the swords that we are tempted to pull out and use according to the flesh? And the one that came to my mind this past week is our tongue. The tongue is a powerful weapon. James refers to the tongue as as being able to do a lot of damage. And I was reflecting on the damage that's been done to me over my lifetime of words that have been spoken that stuck with me. Comments made by people that they might have just been saying it in passing. But my goodness, I can remember them. And I can remember comments that were made to me as a child. They stick, they, they, they cut, they wound. And then I started thinking, well, I wonder what are some of the comments I've made to people over the years that maybe I didn't even mean to, but sort of in passing, I, I spoke them and they inflicted wounds. The, the, the tongue can do great damage, right? Especially when you're a sarcastic person. I've sometimes said my, one of my love languages is sarcasm, right? So this is a real challenge. And, and I encourage those of you who, who wrestle with this, you know, consider how often do you use the tongue to cut down, to strike down, to criticize? Why you do it this way? Why didn't you do it that way? How often when you speak, is it sort of cut and how often when you speak, is it breathing life and building up? Right? Think, I mean, do the math sometimes. You know, ask your spouse. Ask a friend. When I speak, does it tend to be more I don't know, negative, critical, why this, why not that? Or does it tend to be more encouraging, blessing? Way to go. Right? And, you know, I, don't know what the ma- I don't know what the ratio is, but you know, uh, there ought to be as many positive as negative at the very least, and probably more. I don't know what the perfect number is, but at least be willing to examine. Look in the mirror and examine and ask the tough question. Am I doing more cutting down or am I doing more speaking life and building up? Right? You say, but but you don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand what they said to me. I mean, I had to. I had to save face. Did Jesus save face when he was reviled? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he was rejected, what did he do? He entrusted himself to the Father. And we're called to follow his example. Follow in the steps of Jesus. Right? When you're rejected, when you're trying to save face, put away the sword. Right? Entrust yourself to the Father. Second, he was deserted and yet he loved. Look at verse 50. And they all left him and fled. That's a great summary of the life of Jesus. They all left him. They all fled away. Here he is arrested. The disciples are not arrested. So why do the disciples run? Well, when a mob shows up searching for blood with weapons and swords, your tendency is, we're out of here. Right? And Jesus told them, like just within the past hour, you guys are all going to fall away. No, we're not. We'll die before we fall away. Yes, you will. One hour later, here they are, running. Verse 51 is an interesting part of the story. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's just be honest. This is odd. (laughs) Only Mark records this. 
what do we do with it? Where's the practical application here? I'll point out a couple possible options, you know. Uh, one, you know, this, this highlights the historical nature of the story. You don't make this up. You know, if you're telling this story of the, and you're making it up, oh, by the way, there was a naked guy there, right? So it just highlights the veracity, the truthfulness of the story. So there's one practical application. Trust God's word. It has the story of a naked person in it, right? <laughs> Second, there's possibly an interesting parallel here with the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? The first garden, the very first garden, very first temptation, where they sin, and then all of a sudden they recognize their nakedness. And they're ashamed of it. And what do they do? They run. And they hide themselves. And here we have a second garden, a second Adam, a second temptation. And here we have a man running away in shame, naked. And you contrast that with Jesus, who stays. He remains. He's faithful. He doesn't run away. He's faithful. He's there. Everyone else runs away, including Peter. Look at verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. It might seem at first like he's being the hero. He's following, but we know what's about to happen, right? This is foreshadowing. We know what happens. Three times, he said, hey, you're one of Jesus' followers, right? No, I never knew the man. Three times, just like Jesus predicted would happen. And of course it happens. Everyone leaves him. And of course this fulfills Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everyone has gone his own way. The disciples fled. We have fled. We've all gone our own way. Here's Jesus Alone. And even this verse even points to the fact that he's forsaken by the Father. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father laid on the Son our iniquity, our sin, which causes Jesus to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is alone there. None of his followers, they've fled. Even God the Father inflicting him with our sin, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And here's Jesus deserted. And yet, what did He do? He loved. He loved us. And He loved all the way to the end. This past Monday was Valentine's Day. The number of cards purchased and sold with a number of different poems and promises written in them. I'm not an overly sentimental person. And so, you know, these often kind of come across as cheesy to me. But I am a sucker for a good country ballad and a good country lyric. So I want to share a couple with you. This is one from Paul Overstreet. Uh, He wrote a song that Randy Travis sang. He said, They say time can play tricks on a memory, make people forget things they knew. Well, it's easy to see it's happening to me. I've already forgotten every woman but you. And then he, see, that's a good right there. That's a classic. <laughs> Give that as a Valentine next, next year, right? And then he goes on and he says, I'm going to love you forever, forever and ever. Amen. Right? And then another example came to my mind, a song that Clint Black wrote and sang with his wife. When I said I do, I meant that I will till the end of all time. 
be faithful and true, devoted to you. That's what I had in mind when I said I do. So we have these songs, which I happen to really like, that express just how much they love and how, to what extent I'll go to to love you. Uh, the only problem with them is they can't really promise, they can't fulfill what they've promised. They've bitten off a little more than they can chew. Right? For example, I'm going to love you forever. Really? Can you promise that? Forever and ever, amen? Right? Can you promise you're going to love her forever? Like you, you, you're going to die sometime, right? Which is why our vows say, till death do us part. I'm going to love you till I die. I, that, that, that's the extent I can promise as a finite person. Right? When I said I do, I meant that I will till the end of all time. Really? You can promise that you're going to love her till time ends? You can't make that promise. You can promise to love her till death do you part. But even then, let's be honest. I mean, I know this is sober, sobering to think about. There are many people who experience awful sicknesses and they don't even know who their spouse is at the end of their life. Maybe even for years, don't even know her name. Right? So, uh, so I'm, I'm all about the, the poetry and the promises and it's wonderful, but let's be honest. We can only commit to so much when it comes to love. Right? You're going to die. And, and, or she's going to die before you. And it's even possible that she's not going to know your name. Or you're not going to know her name. And here's the point. Here's why I mentioned this. There's only one who can love you to the end. And he has. He was willing to go all the way to the end alone for you. And my question for you this morning is, do you know his love? Have you experienced his love? You have a desire and a want and a need to be loved. You're craving to be loved. And that's a God-given natural instinct. And, 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 and there's only one who can truly love you the way you want and need to be loved. And he already has. He loved you to the end. Do you know him? If you don't, go to Him, trust in Him, and experience His love. And it'll actually free you to turn around and love Him the way He loved you. You'll be willing to love others even when they don't love you in return. You say, how can I possibly do that? Because He did that for you. I hope you experience wonderful love in this life. Wonderful love where you can say things like, I'm going to love you forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's wonderful. Do that. I'm not saying don't do that. Sing the song. Listen to the song. Right? But at the end of the day, there's only one who can truly love you to the end. And he has. Some of you have not experienced. You've been broken. You've experienced great pain in this life because of a spouse who didn't love you like he should have. Because of parents who didn't love you like they should have. Right? And you've experienced great pain. And I want to encourage you. There's one who loves you. Like, like, like you want to be loved. There's one who loved you all the way to the end. Let him love you. Go to him and trust in him and experience the love that you're craving. Jesus was deserted. He was deserted by his followers. He's been deserted by you. He's been deserted by me. And yet he loved us and he loved us to the end. Third, he was wronged and yet he endured. After Jesus is arrested, there is a trial. It's what we would call a kangaroo trial. Um, when you put the four different Gospels together, here's kind of the chronological order, just to help you make sense of it. 
He first goes before Annas, who's the previous high priest. And then Annas sends him to Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. Caiaphas sends him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want anything to do with him, sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate, and then Pilate hands him over to be crucified. But all of these events are all precipitated by the religious leaders holding this trial and finding Jesus guilty before they hand him over to Rome. And it is a, to say the trial is unjust is an understatement. Let me just point out several ways we see the injustice of the trial. First of all, they're seeking testimony against him, but they can't find any. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They're looking for witnesses, but they can't find any. So what do they do? They start kind of, you know, coming up with witnesses who conflict with each other. False witnesses. Look at verse 56. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they can't find the witnesses they need. So what do they do? They say, we're just going to ask him straightforward. He'll be our witness. So they ask him. And he remains silent. He doesn't say anything. Sometimes, by the way, when you're innocent, the best thing to do is to remain silent. And this, by the way, fulfills Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, eventually, Jesus will open his mouth and speak. And you say, why? What happened? What changed? Mark doesn't tell us. Matthew does. So listen to Matthew 26, 63. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. When he says, I adjure you, he's using legal language. He's appealing to the Old Testament. He's appealing to a verse like Leviticus 5.1, which says, if you're a witness, you have to testify. American law has a right to remain silent. The Old Testament law doesn't have such a right. The Old Testament law says, if you're a witness, then you have to bear witness to what happened. So he says, I adjure you by the living God. You must speak. If you're a witness, you witness to these things. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And now look at how Jesus responds. Verse 62, Jesus said, I am. Unequivocal, explicit, clear as day. I am. Ego eimi. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. See, up to this point, Jesus has been sort of secretive. It's what's called the messianic secret. He, when he heals somebody, he says, don't go tell anybody. Why? It's not yet his time. He still has teaching, discipleship, training. It's not yet his time. But now, it's his time. Now he's no longer secretive. There's no longer a messianic secret. Now he's going public. And many people have pointed to this is the climax in Mark's gospel, where Jesus says unequivocally, explicitly, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Now he knows there's going to be confusion with that. What exactly does that mean? What are the implications? And so Jesus goes even further just to clear it up. He says, and by the way, you're going to see me seated at the right hand of God, the right hand of power. In other words, I'm about to be vindicated. You're going to find me guilty. You're going to put me to death, but I'm going to be vindicated. I'm going to raise from the grave. I'm going to be seated at God's right hand 
reigning in power and authority. And one day I'm going to return in the clouds as the judge to judge you. So here you are judging me, and you're going to find me guilty, though I'm not. But one day the tables are going to turn, and you're going to stand before me, and I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to judge the living and the dead. Well, how does the high priest respond to this? Look at verse 63. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. He says, well, that's it. What other witnesses do we need? Well, all your witnesses so far have failed to testify. you got one witness standing before you telling you he's the Christ, the Son of God. He's got a track record of actually demonstrating proof that he is. And you're now convinced that he's not. What other witnesses do we possibly need? We've got all we need. We've got all the evidence we need. What do you guys think? Innocent or guilty? He's clearly not the Messiah. He's clearly not the Son of God. I mean, look at him. And yet, here he is, just explicitly claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. What do you all say? Guilty or not guilty? And it says, they all condemned him, verse 64. On a quick side note, this is how people often respond to Jesus. Their minds are already made up. The jury is not out. (laughs) The, 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 The people are convinced he can't be what he claimed to be. And they won't even have an open mind about the possibility that he might be who he claimed to be. And so I just want to encourage you this morning. I want to nudge you this morning. If you're not a follower of Jesus, at the very least, be open-minded. At the very least, don't be dogmatic. At the very least, be willing to weigh the evidence and consider. Don't be like these guys who already had the decision made up before they even considered the case. At least have an open mind. We see these injustices left and right, and we see a final injustice in verse 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. See, notice, this is not about justice for them. They hate him. They've been committed to kill him from day one. And we know that because when they find him guilty, what do they do? They start spitting on him. They hate him. They cover his face and they start striking him in the face. And they say, if you are who you claim to be, tell me who just hit you. How awful, how shameful this is. How embarrassing this is. They're not interested in injustice. This is the greatest injustice that's ever happened in human history. The only truly innocent person is being treated like the worst criminal, and he's experiencing the most unjust trial a person could experience. And yet Hebrews 12.2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured it. He endured the cross and everything that came with it for the joy that was set before him. And the author of Hebrews says, we are supposed to endure the race. Just like Jesus did by keeping our eyes on him. And so I want to encourage you this morning from God's word to continue in the race. To continue to endure. To continue to run. To continue to put one foot in front of the other. This is actually my method when I have done the Manitou Springs Incline. Anybody else done the Manitou Springs Incline? The first time I did it, I made this terrible mistake of stopping. And it's like I stopped and then I sat down. And then this person would pass me and then I would try and then I'd go a couple more steps and then you know, I'd pass him. And I just kept seeing the same people, kept stopping, kept taking breaks, kept sitting down. It, 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 it climbs 2,000 feet elevation in less than one mile. 
There's over 2,700 steps, and the average grade is 45%. And my second time out, my strategy was, I'm just not going to stop. I might go slow as Christmas. And I might not be the record time. The record time, by the way, is 17 minutes and 45 seconds. I didn't come anywhere close to that. But my strategy was, I'm just not going to stop. Might be just sh- I might be shuffling my feet, but I am going to keep going. And I did a lot better the second time. And that's actually my strategy for doing Pike's Peak as well. It's like, I just don't stop. Just never stop. You just keep going. And I believe that's the message from God's Word this morning, is to encourage you to keep going, keep pressing on, keep enduring the race that's set before us. And perhaps you need to be encouraged this morning to keep going in the faith. Some of you may be here this morning tempted to walk away from the faith. I'm not sure about all this. I'm not sure I believe all this. I want to encourage you from God's Word. Keep going. It may be slow. It may be ugly. Keep going. It it, it wasn't always pretty with Jesus walking to the cross. Sometimes it was slow. Sometimes He needed help. So I want to encourage you. In the faith, keep going. Some of you may need to be encouraged in your marriage this morning. The way you love your wife, the way you love your husband, you may need to be encouraged this morning. Keep going. Keep pressing on. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Some of you may need to be encouraged as a parent this morning. You may kind of say, well, I just feel like I'm just done here. Keep going. Keep being faithful. Keep pressing on in your parenting. Some of you may feel like this with the church. I'm done. I quit. You need to be encouraged from God's Word this morning. Stay faithful to Christ's bride. Stay faithful to Christ's people. You say, but I'm tired. I know. We're all tired. Jesus was tired. He didn't stop because He got tired. You may say, but I've been wronged. You know, People said this, did that, looked at me this way. We've all been wronged. Jesus was wronged. When he was wronged, he didn't say, oh, I'm done. I'm out now. I was wrong. This is an injustice. I'm out. He was wronged, and yet he endured for the joy that was set before him. And my encouragement to you this morning, I'm not saying do it in your own strength. I'm not saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just keep going. I'm saying do what the author of Hebrews says. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Listen to how he says it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep putting one foot in front of the other, enduring the race that is set before us. He was rejected and yet He entrusted He was deserted, and yet He loved all the way to the end. He was wronged, and yet He endured. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Make sure your eyes are on Him. Make sure you're following Him. Make sure you're trusting Him. Let's pray.